Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. Wade and I are in our new brand new studio that college built us a studio of, uh, you know, like a like soundproof studio, top it's of the line. Fancy. Yep. Actually, it's just um, an empty office with uh, nothing on the walls so far. So it actually, the vibe in here is not good yet. And but. it turned out the uh, the heat didn't work. And we thought like, oh, we just got to turn a knob or something. And Mike put in a request and they tore up like three or four offices to try to um, yeah, fix like, the heat for this one. So we're thankful for the heat we have right yeah. now in the new the new office, the studio that we get until they say we can't have it anymore. That was the agreement. Uh, we could get booted at, at any moment. At so any if the time. podcast just stops, we were told to leave. Should we even bother decorating? Uh, I feel like it needs something. There's it, It's pretty pretty empty in here. Yeah. Well, uh, Josh Seeger is going to be coming on soon for an episode. and he uh, He's big into logos and sports and colors. Maybe he'll have some... There you go. Some suggestions some or something suggestions like that. Us, we yeah. could have a sports wall on one side. Yeah. We should also have maybe a Martin Luther wall because we're doing a whole winging it series on the, the life of Martin Luther. And we've been doing this a while now. And if you've been following, we're grateful. You can always go back. You can jump in the middle. That's fine, too. But we did start with uh, setting um, kind of the, the whole context of the Reformation in this uh, late medieval age. And then we got into his parents. We got into his birth, his early education. And then we've kind of been on a little bit of a chronological um, uh, hiatus here and starting to talk about like bigger themes like the city of Wittenberg. Um, what's it like being a college professor kind of in Wittenberg, what Luther was doing? We sort of touched on that. And now we'd like to take a very uh, a huge figure in the Reformation story, at least one episode on him, um, and that's Frederick, later known Frederick the Wise. And he really is the, the can we say, founder of the University of Wittenberg? Does I he think get it's fair yeah, to say that, yeah. A, certainly the one that had the bright idea to put, um, put the university there in Wittenberg and uh, was really largely a protector of Martin Luther, and I don't even know if we'll we'll get to get to Luther and Frederick um, very much at all because Frederick really deserves his own episode, um, his own he he's, his own books, his own his own space here. Uh, just even if you didn't, even if he was not a part of this Reformation era, he's really a fascinating figure and a very important figure. And we mentioned, I think, last time just. How, how striking it was to us that there was so much talent in one little location there in Germany in one, one specific time, and we talked about all the theologians there and, and the reasons for that. But when you think about Frederick on uh, the scene of Europe at this, at this juncture, I mean, he is very, very close, and some historians say just maybe for a few hours he was. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think three lector. hours, they said, yeah. Yeah, so you're talking, uh, and, and just that, that one little, we, you can make the argument, well, we wouldn't know about Frederick without the, <clears throat> without the Lutheran Reformation, sure. But he's also very close to being an historical figure that would have been fairly well known um, just on his own. And so a fascinating figure. So, uh, Wade, um, you're the historian here. Do you kind of want to just set up the, the, the whole family scene and uh, the lands of Saxony? Sure. Yeah, I just got a little distracted. Uh, we have Wi-Fi in here, Mike. Oh, you know perfect. That? Yeah. It, uh, we should get it in my office, too. Yeah, that'd be really nice. Uh, but um, 
if we're thinking of Frederick to cover maybe a few things that we've covered last time or in previous sessions, uh, Frederick is elector of Saxony, so he's a prince who also gets to vote when the Holy Roman Emperor is elected. He's one of seven electors who are able to do that. Some are just princes, some are bishop princes. And uh, Saxony was divided uh, in the end of the 15th century into Ernestine and Albertine Saxony. So Ernst and Albert, you can see there in the names. And there was a lot of considerations that went into why this happened. And, and some we can't know for sure, but Frederick's father divides the two. And Albrecht, um, Ernst's brother, gets one part and then Frederick will inherit Ernestine Saxony. And when it was divided up, um, the, the custom they had was that the, the one brother would divide things, and then the second brother would pick which of the two he wanted to have. Which is awesome. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it kind of makes sense. And Albrecht took what seemed to be the better half as far as the more established cities, um, maybe better resources, economy, stuff like that. Um, so Frederick is going to inherit what might be considered the lesser half of Saxony, but he is very determined to turn it into the greater half, or really to have it on the map of Europe. Now, Saxony is already on the map of Europe because Frederick is an elector. Um, he is someone, whenever there's an election of a Holy Roman Emperor, he is someone who is going to be have people want to bribe him, woo him, maybe even nudge him to run, and that's where it comes in that he maybe was elected emperor, for a few hours and kind of demurred. Um, but he already then was an important European player. But he will do a lot in his lifetime. One of the, the essential things to being a really good, successful ruler is reigning for a while, right? You, you have to have time. And, uh, and so he manages to reign for a while. He lives a, a fairly long life and will become kind of a mainstay in German uh, politics, but also European politics as well. And uh, it seems his own father, Ernst, had had some occasions in his early years where he was kind of embarrassed by his lack of learning, for instance, his lack of knowledge of Latin. Um, and so he had seen to it that Frederick was very well educated. Um, so Frederick's familiar with humanism. He's familiar with um, the theology and the, the, just the thought in general of the day. Um, but he has this half of Saxony that has a lot of promise, it has a number of resources, but it doesn't have a university, it doesn't really have a leading city, um, and he's going to want to make Wittenberg uh, kind of a center for these things. Um, one of the interesting things, in, in one of the books that both Mike and I had read for this, uh, is put out by Concordia Publishing House, it's entitled Frederick the Wise, Seen and Unseen Lives of Martin Luther's Protector by Sam Wellman. I enjoyed it. I thought it was pretty accessible, Mike. Uh, I don't. I don't know what your thoughts were, but well, not only was it accessible, but um, just so much information I didn't know about it, and like, like, totally changed my idea kind of thing. It wasn't just oh, that's a nice detail, but just the fact that he kind of grew up and knew Maximilian. Right? We have. Uh, I didn't know how close they were. I didn't know how, um, uh, for instance, how interconnected. Frederick and his family were to the other leading uh, royal families in Europe, that he had been in Rome, that he had taken a trip to the Holy Land, that he really was the guy that a lot of people looked to, right? You know, something about Saxony, too, I, the trade-off between the, you know, the so-called better with the leading cities 
in Saxony and kind of maybe more of a slender kind of territory that becomes electoral Saxony, the trade-off was you got the electorship eventually. I mean, it's more complicated than that, but, but it ended up being that you got the, you got the vote, right? And that meant you were a political player. And um, the second... Kind of think of maybe um, the way primaries have run in America. Iowa might not be what everyone thinks of as really the, you know, a... Uh, normally a big influencer in American politics. And maybe shouldn't, too. We can argue that, but it right. is. But because of the early caucus there, Iowa and New Hampshire um, have political sway that maybe is not in line with population numbers or or otherwise, um, you know, the influence it might have. And so th- that electoral title was like being the early caucus or, caucus or, or primary. And, you know, another advantage of having to really kind of build up electoral Saxony, this territory that is uh, slender. And I mean, slender is that it's not, it, it looks like gerrymandering happened to, to Saxony and, and there was uh, politics and economics behind that. Um, he was forced to put it on the map. And so he had to build things, literally build things. He constantly had um, building projects there. But when you get to build something, you get to build it right. And, and then that really does play into his desire to keep a good faculty at Wittenberg, which included Luther and Melanchthon, and was willing to defend them at certain places. But also that, we talked about this before, Luther and Melanchthon aren't at, they're not in Cologne or Paris. They're not at even a university like Erfurt, where they may be stifled a little bit. Um, and so something young, fresh, build it from the ground up, there is an advantage there. And, and whether or not Frederick was happy with his, his allotment, he certainly took advantage of it and loved his little uh, electoral Saxony. And when you're able to build like that, too, you're able to give a nod to the past. Um, you're going to build and develop things in a way that acknowledge the best of the past, but also kind of build with an eye towards the future. And so... We see here, as was mentioned a couple sessions ago, kind of a transition from medieval to early modern in a lot of ways, too, a a very present and strong princely court, um, while still uh, the All Saints Foundation that we've talked about before, ecclesiastically very important, um, a center of learning. And so, yeah, the the hand he was able able to have in shaping Saxony was very important. And it seems he was also very aware of the need not just to dote on one town, um, but to undertake projects throughout Saxony, which A, is good for employing people, but B, um, you know, it, you don't get the, well, the economy goes down and people say, well, D.C. isn't suffering, uh, to, to kind of spread the love out a little bit as well. One of the things that I also thought was helpful uh, that I was reminded of is the interrelatedness of much of the, uh, the ruling elite in Europe at this time, and especially in Germany, and it was the custom many times to refer to each other as cousin. And that could be somewhat like, you know, you're use, we call each other brothers and sisters in the church. Or you call, we even, well, in the 90s, you'd say, hey, cuz. Um, <laughs> but oftentimes they were cousins, too. Yep. And marriage alliances uh, and family concerns, you were oftentimes relying on those connections for support, but often then playing against uh, relations as well, um, for the good of your own territory. And so one of his relatives is 
uh, the King Maximilian, who I believe was never formally elected emperor. It, well, he did it himself. I don't know if that count. Yeah, so he didn't do it through the estates, which was like the um, political order of the day. Uh, so that's a cousin. Duke George, who will take over for Albrecht in ducal Saxony, meaning it has a duke, not electoral Saxony, which has an elector, will be a cousin. Uh, and a be thorn a, in Luther's flesh. Yeah, and Luther will be a thorn in his, and, and Frederick will have to mediate these things. And he will do so oftentimes through this strategy that I think some biographers take it as weakness and some take it as strength, uh, that sometimes no action is better than some action. Um, we sometimes view bold, you know, leaders as being good leaders when they take bold action all the time. And even we see this in America still today, something happens and then we look for the president or Congress to do something, do anything, so we feel like something's being accomplished. And Frederick, in many ways, was a, a master of delay. Mm-hmm. You know, he could listen carefully. He could figure out exactly how much do I have to say or do, and then how much can I maybe ride things out. And I think this saves Luther's head. I mean, it, this is what keeps Luther alive. He's really good at ignoring, especially yeah. like his own close relatives, and just kind of imagine him rolling his eyes a little bit and, just, and then just kind of with a few words here, put something off that he doesn't want to deal with. And I think this is an important part of good leadership. And I think even in pastoral ministry, half of the ministry is knowing when to do nothing. Like, I'm just going to wait and let this play out. And so I see that as a strength on his part. But this is also why he uh, he is Frederick III, but he will oftentimes, you know, rulers, if you didn't get a name, that usually meant you maybe weren't the best ruler. You didn't want to be like the bald or the fat because there were some of those. <laughs> um, so the wise, that's a good one. You get some who will be the magnanimous. Um, but... It's acknowledged, it's recognized by contemporaries at least. He was very shrewd in how he was able to navigate things. He was capable of, um, you know, really putting himself out there at times when he, when he wanted something. But he could also, especially as he got older, it appears, was able to kind of play behind the scenes and then let others kind of claim things for themselves. So to make sure that he was going to get what what he thought was best for his subjects, for his territory, and for him, um, but also let others feel like they had gotten what they wanted to. And was fine with somebody else taking the credit on here and there thing. And and we've kind of said uh, tongue-in-cheek that, uh, you know, the key to leadership is getting other people to think that your idea was their idea. And, uh, you know, his wisdom, too, two things why I think he's called... Uh, you know, Frederick the Wise, or to add to that is he's an elector for a very long time. And at times he's definitely the elder statesman there. And so they look to him not only because of his connections to the empire, but also uh, his connections with the other electors. And and the electors, you may even want to think about kind of like senators in the United States, or at least the way it used to be there. There was a, there is a fraternity uh, there, um, you know, maybe not the right word now, but fraternity there that, you know, you were, even if you were opposed to each other economically, maybe even militarily, um, maybe politically, um, you protected each other because you were protecting the group and the power that the group had. And you, you respected each other for, for the burdens that you had, you had taken. The other thing about the wises and, and, uh, uh, the, the book pointed this out, the biography that, um, very fond of Proverbs, 
You can think that he thought and about biblical these biblical proverbs, but also you know just German sayings. Yeah, just just wise things that he had learned and that were repeated, and uh, and and you can see that being played out. Maybe take a step back just a little bit and and just think about what would a, what would a prince look like? What would he do and think, and how would he act in those times? You know, uh, this is we're not too removed from the the medieval classic person that we have. He would have jousted. He would have hunted. He would have... And he appeared to have enjoyed it all. Yeah, and was good at it, even into maybe an age when he shouldn't have been. It's great in there when he has uh, Maximilian and Frederick are both, I think, well into their 50s, and Frederick was having trouble even walking anymore, and they still joust. And then they would do this, risking death, right, and doing it to people that were their friends, their relatives, their, uh, you know economic and political partners uh, is kind of fascinating to us. And, and there's all sorts of schmoozing going on. That's this so-and-so was invited to his um, hunting lodge, his favorite hunting lodge, and they would have hunting parties. And there was all sorts of uh, camaraderie there, but that also a lot of little traditions that they followed as well. Um, he would have had, had an education, right? You, I think you could even compare some of that to, um, power players golfing today, mm-hmm. right? We're going to go out and golf, but by the time we get to the 18th hole, 18th hole we're going to have talked a little business yep. too, or maybe when we get back to the clubhouse after, there's some, some stuff that comes up and some deals that get made, and it wasn't necessarily in the in a formal setting. Right. But it was, even though it was play, it was also business. Yeah, and then you, the outward, you know, from an historian's point of view or from the people on the ground at that point, oh, Frederick is the enemy of so-and-so. Well, actually, they're pretty good friends, and they hung out a lot, even though they disagree and publicly maybe even have to snipe at each other. Um, and you can see the parallels. with It's just powerful people in, in general. So his court, he would have, you know, when he would have eaten, it would have been a, a scene. There would have been uh, people that would have um, served him. There, he never would have eaten eaten alone. There would have been many people there. Oftentimes, music, and he especially seemed to enjoy music. And I didn't. I never knew Saxon. He was known for its trumpeters. Yeah, trumpeters, and then and then he played the lute, right? And so, and then I I'm going to give this trumpeter to loan him out for someone else, and and just the fact that they paid them salaries, and certain people got paid more. So it was a very sophisticated, complicated court, like it like it always is. Um, and let's just maybe admit that when it comes to marriage and sex, sexuality, um, that as powerful people are, they kind of tend to not think the rules of the peasants apply to them. Um, with At the same time, there are, when we think of marriages, um, falling in love and getting married to somebody, um, or the, the other extreme that there's an arranged marriage between two, these were political things and always looking for marriage and maybe even deals like this three-year-old daughter when she gets older she's going to be given to the king of so-and-so so that we can have this political and from far i mean france and italy and i mean all the way hungary and all this kind of stuff that and then you get mad at each other and you yank those deals out you know yeah and then so it's hard for us to really understand how uh, a prince and there's been many of them would be in a marriage where they would have children. And yes, it was a political marriage, but they're committed to each other. But they had their concubines, and it was just kind of understood that that was okay. Well, and that's something that comes up a lot in the book is how many of the rulers end up with syphilis, which was what they call the French sweats or the French disease at this time. 
it was pretty common to have a number of mistresses. And I think one thing that's to Frederick's cre- credit and probably shows a little bit of his piety is um, Frederick had what we would, what some would call, I don't like this term, but illegitimate children. Mm-hmm. Um, children outside of marriage, I don't think any child, personally, I don't think is illegitimate. I think mm-hmm. they're, um, through Christ, obviously, have standing in God's eyes. But um, Frederick never got one of those power marriages, and he kind of tried a few times, and he kind of competed with Duke George even once, and then George ends up with, um, what was it, an Austrian wife or a Polish mm-hmm. wife? I can't remember. But Frederick appears to have had this concubine who, by all accounts, was a wife, but Frederick couldn't marry because of um, status, right? Mm-hmm. This would have been a marriage con- considered beneath him. And we see this still today. Sometimes we'll have a story that someone from royalty renounces their claims to royalty to marry a commoner. Um, but Frederick, it appears, did not hide his children at court. Um, the children he had had this with this woman were were present at court. Luther even comments on this, and it appears he was not a, uh, you know, he wasn't, um, you know, getting around a lot. Mm-hmm. But he he did have this this woman that he cared for, and th- there are even some images of him with, or we think they mm-hmm. are of him mm-hmm. with her. Um, but maybe if we use that to segue a little bit into Frederick's piety. Um, the big question maybe we can ask at the end, if we remember to come back, Mike, is if we think he ever really became an evangelical. Mm-hmm. But I would say from the reading of this book and then other readings that I've done, Frederick, by all accounts, for his day, seems to have been a rather pious prince. Mm-hmm. Um, a good Catholic, originally, he's going on pilgrimages. He wants to have these relics. Um, a, yes, they do bring in profit, but B, they do serve his people. Um, and, and even though he knew, okay, listen, I don't have the teeth of whatever St. Bartholomew, but that wasn't the point for him. If these were things that could, that people could use, uh, to, to, uh, meditate on theology and specifically Christ, I think he was fairly for his, even his Catholic upbringing, um, fairly Christocentric, you know, uh, that he says, well, what's, I don't, you know. This, that's not the point right. that if this is actual or not. Um, and so, well, you, you continue. I, well, and it was important to the ecclesiastical life of the day. And, um, and sorry to interrupt, no, but sorry. he's bringing to Saxony, he's got university, but he also wants to make it a religious center. And so that I think that's, he's a poli, I don't want to say he's a politician first and a theo, theologian second, but certainly he was a politician and only, you know, theologically minded, um, as a, as a layman. Um, but not theologically inept. No. I mean, he, it, he's always thinking about these things and he's willing to be corrected by the theologian, but he's also got, and I say this not because he went against evangelical theology, but he was willing to put aside some of more of the Roman Catholic stuff at certain times, the relics being the biggest example of that. And, and he wasn't just this, yes, Pope, yes, Pope, yes, Pope. I mean, he thought for himself in everything. And, and maybe one more point, and then I'll shut up. Uh, oh, that's fine. We tend to think of Luther's day, Roman Catholicism, as being somewhere post-Trent, right? I mean, at Trent, you definitely have, these are the rules. We're, we're, we're clamping down in a lot of good ways reform, in a lot of ways doubling down on what we Lutherans would call uh, false doctrine. But I think there was much more of a wide variety of theological opinion in Luther's day 
than we really realize. Because it's just easy to say, this is what every Roman Catholic believed, and this is where Luther broke. Well, hold on a little bit. I think you, it, it's, it was more diverse than it was um, post-Trent. Well, and I think, um, you know, you look at things like Frederick and his family, uh, what, the Wettens, I, mm-hmm. I'm probably getting that term wrong, um, were very supportive of the Franciscans for a long time. Well, that's because Franciscan theology and practice had certain emphases that they found attractive or important. Uh, Frederick, throughout his life, appears to be very supportive of good, engaging preaching. Um, he, he understood, even before Luther, the importance of good preaching. Uh, he is very supportive of the translation of the New Testament and Old Testament. He wants to read the scriptures in German. So it appears that he has interest in things, but we do need to keep in mind, as you've been hitting on, Mike, at this time, a prince's religion was not just a personal matter. A prince's religion had far-reaching consequences. And so there's times where Frederick just had come out and become a full-fledged evangelical very publicly. It might have actually set back the Reformation. It might have actually led to repercussions that hurt his ability to protect Luther. Um, It might have hurt relationships that were very important um, for the undertakings that uh, the early Protestants were um, working towards. In many ways, his brother John, and that was something else I really appreciate about the biography, is how present um, the future elector John is Mm -hmm. throughout. Um, Frederick really keeps John with him. He rules very cooperatively and collaboratively with him. He keeps him in the loop. He recognizes John could have been a big danger if they became enemies, a rival claim. Um, But John, for instance, could be much more outspoken about his Protestantism much earlier on. And then John Frederick, who will become, uh, you know, uh, John the Steadfast, who is is taken captive um, kind of after after the disastrous battle in 1547 where the Small Caldic League is defeated, um, is basically raised Lutheran by Mm -hmm. all accounts. You know, he has tutors who are heavily influenced um, but Frederick surrounds himself with evangelical-leaning people. Um, George Spalatine, for instance, is clearly um, uh, leans towards the Reformation, um, and he suffers no repercussions for that. But uh, but a prince's religion was a public thing, not just a personal thing, and so you couldn't just come out with all of your convictions necessarily in a way that would not do harm to others. Um, and we have an example of that in our recent history. I mean, you, the, the King of England cannot be anything but Anglican. And even Tony Blair, who was um, prime minister for many years, of course, um, by all accounts wanted to be Roman Catholic, and but did not convert until after he was out of office. Um, it, 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 and, and then also just the, that whole, we think individualistically, and, the, and they, they wouldn't have. And so... Frederick's religion was much more private, and not just because of that, but I think it was private in the sense that he was, as you said, he wanted good preaching. He wanted devotional material. I mean, what politician he, today says, I want good devotions every day? He requests that Luther yeah. writes the postilla, that he writes these postals, which are books of sermons for people to preach. When Luther's at the Wartburg, Frederick's happy, he's translating the New Testament, but he says, I mean, through through others, of course. Almost all of his correspondence with Luther takes place through others. But how about you write some sermon books, too, to help preachers who maybe aren't quite there yet with being able to write a good sermon? So he, he definitely is um, supporting some things behind the scenes, too, and not just uh, tolerating things. 
And there's even, and I think um, Wellman does a good job with this, in some of his letters, there's cues to he's invested in reform too. For instance, when things start to kind of go to hell in a handbasket, when Luther's gone and Karlstadt and others are going too quickly, you know, Frederick says, we have moved too quickly. Um, he, uh, I w- this is almost tacit endorsement of reform, uh, the extent to which he protects Luther, while very purposefully having to remain somewhat distant from him. And per- perhaps understanding, and I think we we Lutherans in today's age would, would really um, uh, relate to this, is it's, it's not going to be done in the Senate. It's not going to be done out in the, you know, some proclamation. And look what he supports. He supports preaching. He supports devotional life. He dis- he supports education. He supports the arts. He supports these things. And the movement is more organic that way. It can take hold that way. Um, it's more authentic that way. And I, I think he has a sense of the spiritual side that this that, that there is an... I hate to say individual, but it, it's an individual faith in the sense that everybody believes. He, he's not just going to come out and declare, Saxony's Lutheran tomorrow, right? Um, maybe we could talk just a little bit. And I, and I think, too, just briefly, Mike, he's also thinking these things through. Uh, Frederick's not one to just quickly buy into something. Uh, there's no reason to doubt that part of Frederick's uh, uh, strategy of protecting Luther, but maybe not coming out too publicly in favor of anything, is... Uh, he's he's working through his own faith, I'm sure, and mm-hmm. he's been raised with one thing. Um, he's definitely intrigued by stuff Luther has to say, but he also wants to be a faithful servant of Christ. And, uh, you know, everybody moves at their own pace when it comes to, to such things. And as you've said, he's a politician first. He's not theologically inept, but, um, but he's working through these things as well. He's just a cautious person. He could be Frederick the Cautious, um, even with the Peasants' Revolt, of all the princes, he's the most cautious. He's least responsible for slaughter, even as his brother John is very involved. Um, Frederick's just not one to move quickly with anything. Yeah, well, I think, Wade, would you mind having another episode on this? Because I think we should explain a little bit more Johann, uh, his brother, the Archbishop, Maximilian. I think there's another wing in it in here, if you, if you want. Um I'm all for it. As long, yeah. I mean, if you're going to have to outline it for me so yeah. I stay on task. But. And I, I think maybe just explaining some of the players and a little bit more of the political side and, and give, because I think a lot of our listeners, of course, ha- oh, yeah, I know Frederick the Wise, and uh, but just to see how much he was he was at play in all these politics with Maximilian and then and then figuring out who the next king would be and then if the king would be then emperor and just even maybe explaining the basics of how that all worked out. So, and I think that would be helpful for that. Maybe last thing, Mike, we're kind of button up against the end, but I, I do like the idea of maybe following this session up with another one because this really does play into how Luther is able to survive, although I, I think we're going to have to outline that one so we stay disciplined. Uh, we said we'd speculate at the end, just maybe real quick initial response. Uh, to what extent, at the end of his life, would you say you think Frederick was an evangelical, which is the, the early title for a Lutheran? I think taking communion in both kinds. Which he does on his deathbed. On his deathbed is is a protest. I mean, protest may be too hard, but uh, he didn't have to do that. And to specifically do something that was a clear, here's your side, Roman Catholic, here's your side, 
the Lutheran, you know, and there's a lot of people like this. We can think of like Albert Durer too, who's so excited about the Reformation, but remains in the Roman Catholic Church. You know, it's just hard. Yeah, yeah, it's just hard for us to kind of understand this because we, we, we have the freedom of choice. When there wasn't a clear demarcation, especially even when Frederick dies, it's not it's not always that clear. And uh, it finally was what they and believed in. It's not in their like heart. there was an evangelical church to join, even right. There wasn't like this new thing yeah. that was clearly defined. Yeah, it's not until you know a little bit later when our Lutheran forefathers start speaking about our churches and their confessions. The churches of the Augsburg yeah. Confession, that will be a big milestone. And, and for them, you need to have a constitution, right? I mean, very early on, there's going to be, hey, we got to have these uh, these church orders. But the Augsburg Confession is the confession that kind of is, okay, that the constitution is not the right word, but okay, here we are. This is the gift for the church, but this is what we believe. And if we're going to be rejected, well, then we're going to go this way, and this becomes kind of a founding document. But even even at the at the even in 1530 it wasn't meant to be a founding document it was meant to be this is what we believe this is what the church should do there was always the hope that there would be a church council that would one day bring everybody back together even though it didn't ever come to fruition in the way that it should have yeah and i think i'd fall where you would too i mean whatever we'd want to call him at the end of his life he certainly does some evangelical things um, and he definitely seems to be Christ-focused um, and sensitive to the issues that the Reformation had raised. So I, uh, you know, there was no formal evangelical church, you know, to, to take big four and then uh, have a confirmation in. But I think uh, probably uh, a long way down that evangelical road is where I would put him. So maybe next time we can pick up a little bit with the, the world in which Frederick lived, the political world he had to navigate because, quite frankly, the Reformation just doesn't happen apart from that. When we speak of Reformations, we can talk about magisterial or radical, and the Anabaptists would fall in radical Reformation. Uh, the Lutheran Reformation quite simply was a magisterial Reformation, which means it happened with the support of the magistrates. And so you really can't separate the political world from the religious world in which the Reformation happened. And so I think we can pick up with that. Um, as we close out, I do want to just say thank you to everyone. Last I looked, we're at 107, or 107. I think that's a Michigan way to say it, 107. Uh, ratings, reviews on iTunes. So we're, we're seven over our goal of 100. We thank you for that. If you haven't rated or reviewed yet, please do so. Um, if you're not subscribing, please think about subscribing. That's super helpful uh, to us. But we, real, we really want to thank the listeners, especially for the support of these Winging It sessions. Um, when we first started these series, we didn't quite know how they'd go or how they work. Um, but I, we get a lot of good feedback, the worship one, um, and now with, with church history. And I don't know about you, Mike, but I've really enjoyed them for kind of, it give, gives us an opportunity to do some focused study on these things. Absolutely. I was in Utah this last weekend and, uh, at, at, at church and a man came up to me. Oh, I had never met before, and he specifically said, love the Luther course, or the, the Luther uh, series, and keep it up. So there you go. And the goal, you know, I know some might think, man, they're, they're not even to Worms yet. Um, but the goal is to kind of be slow and deliberate. And, you know, we may decide we get up to a certain year, and we're going to take a break and do something else for a bit when we come back to it. Uh, but, but part of our hope with this is to be able to spend 
some time on stuff, names that get thrown out, places, writings, and everybody goes, like you mentioned earlier, oh, I know Frederick the Wise, but a little bit, to unpack a little bit more of those things, because they, they really, um, in Luther's life, Frederick the Wise wasn't just like, oh yeah, I know him. Uh, Luther's, Luther's life in Wittenberg and his reform just can't be divorced from Frederick. And so these were existential things for Luther, and it's very hard to understand him well apart from them. Uh, you got anything else, Mike? You want me to wrap it up? I guess then ultimately we're at about our, our time we were aiming for. Hope you will come back, continue listen uh, to listen. If you picked up with this one, there's plenty you can go back and work through too. Uh, but in the meanwhile, let the bird fly. Another round, another round, another round, one more round won't get me down. 